You're listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org. Well, hey, I'm going to begin a little bit before that passage in Malachi. You've heard the passage in Malachi, but let me give you a little bit of background on how we got there and where we are in the story of the Bible. So God created Adam and Eve. Okay, don't worry, I won't go over every verse. Like, we won't go over each chapter. God created Adam and Eve. He created the first people and breathed life into them, created them in his image. And then very quickly, just three chapters into the story, sin enters into the world. And so sin enters the world through Adam and Eve. And after a while, God decides, I'm going to destroy the earth with the flood. And yet it's really a redemption story of how I'm going to save Noah's family through that ark and out of that flood to repopulate the world. As the world begins to be repopulated, God says, I want to have a special relationship with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The one that we sang little songs about as kids and Father Abraham, that's the father of many nations, and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob would have 12 boys who would become the 12 tribes of Israel, and this family would become a nation. The promise was always that this family that would become a nation would then bless other nations. But it's hard to bless other nations when you're a slave in Egypt. So God gives them Moses to lead them out in the Exodus, that book in your Bible, to exit Egypt and to head to the promised land. And while they're on their way to the promised land, God uses Moses to essentially give them the rules of the game. Now in the Bible, they talk about that as the law. It'll have a capital L in your Bible, kind of referring to all the rules that God gave them as they're leaving Egypt and heading to the promised land. These are all the rules of the game and how they're supposed to worship God. And one of the things they were to do was to build this tabernacle, this huge tent. If you've ever been to a big event that's outdoors and they have a big tent, it was kind of like that. And this tent would go with them. And God always says, I don't live inside the tent, but that's where you can go to experience me. That's where you can go to worship me is kind of in this tent. So think about it this way. So like the Cowboys don't live at AT AT&T Stadium, right? But the place where you go to experience the Cowboys, or at least we hope, is AT&T Stadium, right? You go inside that room and you experience the most concentrated experience of the Cowboys that you can. And so that was the tabernacle. It would go with them when they would travel. They would take up the stakes and wrap the tent all around, and they would take the tent with them. Later, God would give them Joshua, who would lead them into the promised land through a series of judges and a series of kings. They kind of establish roots in that land, and they build a temple, an actual building temple that would take the place of the tabernacle. So now the tabernacle is kind of obsolete, but the temple is exactly like it. It's just a a brick structure. It's built of stone, and it's actually there. Well, if you were to fast forward in your DVRs, that temple gets destroyed by the Babylonians, like completely destroyed. Kind of a bad day, right? Like you spent all this time getting to this promised land, building this temple. You finally get there, and then it gets destroyed by the Babylonians. Well, in God's plan, God would actually fund the rebuilding of the temple. His people to come back and rebuild that temple, he funded it through other countries because God's just like that. He's hilarious. So anyways, so they actually pay the money to rebuild God's temple in the land. But it's been a long time since we got the rules to this game. It's been a long time since we had any real worship in this building. The economy's not doing so hot, and these people are just kind of all confused and all messed up. This rebuilt temple is the same temple that Jesus is going to interact with just hundreds of years later. And yet we find God's people at the temple, but not really at the temple. 
kind of confused about what to do and what these rules of the game really are. And so if I were to sum up the book of Malachi in one sentence, to put it all there, on the back of your worship guide, there's kind of a main idea at the bottom of your worship guide, and that's simply this. When we forget the rules of worship, we dishonor God and we will quickly dishonor each other. Chapter one is really all about dishonoring God. That's the chapter we're gonna look at this morning. Chapters two through four are all about how they were dishonoring each other because they started by dishonoring God. So if you want to read in your quiet time this week, if you want to read in your time in scripture, those next couple chapters, you now have the secret decoder ring to say chapter one is how we're dishonoring God. Chapters two through four is how we're dishonoring each other as a result of really forgetting the rules of worship. Now, it's a weird thing to forget the rules, right? I don't know if you guys have been watching the NBA bubble. I don't know if you've been watching some of those games. I've enjoyed kind of watching the different fans that are on the screen behind the court. And the NBA bubble's been a great success, right? Because the Mavericks are tearing it up and we're amazing. Luka Doncic is by far the best player in the NBA. Not that we're biased, but he just is. And so he's been putting up crazy numbers. They've been scoring like 70 points in the first half. Lots of defense, it's great. So anyways, so, uh, so we're playing, so the Mavericks start the play playoffs tomorrow. Tomorrow, the Mavericks start in the playoffs in the bubble. It's awesome. We're going to win it all. There will be no asterisk. We won the bubble series. So, um, so as you're watching the Mavericks, how do we know that Luca is so good at basketball? Well, we know because there's a start time and there's an end time. The quarters are only so long. There's these lines on the court that are inbounds and out of bounds. There's an area for two-point shots and an area for three-point shots. There's referees who are running around calling fouls if you violate the rules of the game. That's how we know that Luca is so amazing because we've tested him up against all the other players within these rules. But what if we took the rules away? What if we just didn't have refs on the floor? What if we took up the lines from the floor? You would, you would tune in to watch that and say, this isn't basketball. This is like UFC, right? It would just be a brawl. Right, even if we let them call their own fouls, there would be no, there would be no one deciding what is really a foul. As soon as Lucas scored like 20 points, what's to keep them from just jacking him into the bench or taking out his knees? Just because they decided they didn't want him to score anymore. You would watch that and say, this has devolved into something entirely different. This isn't basketball anymore. We can't keep track of who's good and who's bad because it's just kind of reckless. Malachi is doing the same thing. He's saying, you've so erased the rules of worship, we can't call it worship anymore. You're doing something completely different. Because this is such chaos, we need to come back to the rules of the game. We need to come back to what this actually is because you see the rules of the game honor the game itself, but they protect the individuals inside the game. You may have a stereotype in your mind of God's rules are always there to just squash me, take away all fun, tell me all the cool stuff I want to do is wrong. You may have the impression of God's rules, but in fact, God's rules are there to honor his creation and protect the people inside of it. His rules are there to actually protect us, to keep us safe, so that we know when we're thriving, we know when we're doing well. It's not to just squash us and tell us we can't have any fun. In fact, it's actually the opposite. So let's turn to Malachi chapter one. If you're watching us online, grab your Bible, turn to Malachi chapter one. It's the last book in the Old Testament. So right before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are the stories about Jesus, right before that is Malachi. So the last book of your Old Testament, go ahead and turn there in chapter one. And I'm gonna reread for us verses six through eight. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I'm a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts. O priests who despise my name, 
But you say, have we despised your name by offering polluted food upon my altar? But you say, have we polluted you by saying that the Lord's table may be despised? When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? Simply put, in this back and forth conversation that Malachi writes down, there's questions and answers going back and forth between the people and between God. We would reply simply back to God and say, we can't see you. Number one in your worship guide there, we can't see you. You're invisible to us, and so it makes it hard for us to worship you. So then God points that out, and God says, do you think that you would honor your fathers this way, or the masters that you work for, or the governors that are over you in politics? Do you think you could honor them in the same way that you honor me? Do you think they would take this? You think you could pay your taxes this way? You think you could go to work this way? You think you could live with your father this way of disrespecting them the way you disrespect me? Of giving the leftovers to me the way you give the leftovers to the government or to work or to your home? And the people would simply shoot back and go, we, we can't see you, you're invisible to us. And so God is challenging them that you're holding me to a different standard than everyone else. In fact, you're giving me just the leftovers of your life. You're honoring your fathers you can see you're honoring the masters you can see. You're honoring the government you can see. You've forgotten about the God that you can't see. You've forgotten about that invisible God. And so part of the rules of the game, the stated rules of the game that were given to Moses on Mount Sinai, part of those rules were they were to give their best on the altar. There was literally this brick kind of stone altar that was made there at the temple, and they would put the best of their oil, the best of their grain, the best of their animals, and place it on that altar. Then the priests would pray and they would put their sin on that altar and it would be burnt up. So this is before Jesus and him sacrificing himself on the cross. This is how they maintained their relationship with God. The priests would lay their hands on the sacrifice and the sins of the people would go onto those animals and be burnt up as a offering to God. That was the rules of the game. They were supposed to bring their best. We read over that all the time, but think about what that really meant. Think about the faith it would take to bring your best. Now, I don't know a ton about farming. I've had family that have farmed. I've worked on farms and done all that kind of stuff. And you may, after I'm done explaining this, you may say, yeah, you really don't know a lot about that. But at the same time, what would it take? How valuable was it back then before Amazon, before global supply lines, the best of your oil, the best of your spices on that altar? Wouldn't it be more valuable if it was really, really hard to get to? It's really, really hard to do. What about the best of your grain? You're gonna take the best of your grain. You know what the best of your grain is good for? The seed for next year. You could have taken the best of your grain and said, oh, I, that can be my seed for next year. Here, God, I'll give you this, the leftovers, the not as good, because I really wanna hold on to that good seed for next year. That, that could make my crops really, really good. You see, they had weather back then, right? Like since the curse, since Genesis three, we've had weather. They had hot years and cold years. They had wet years and dry years. They had years where the locusts would come and eat all the crops. It took a lot of faith to take the best of your grain and to put it on that altar. Think about the livestock. The best lamb, the best sheep, the best bull. We're gonna put that on the altar? That's the one I want to breed with the rest of my herd. 
That's the A number one. That's the one I'm keeping. I'm not selling that one. I'm not going to burn it up for sure. If I use that bull, that's going to strengthen my whole herd. That'll help me for years and years to come. And yet you want me to put my best on the altar? It took incredible faith to do that. We make fun of the Israelites because they live in pages that are black and white, but think about their lives. One year of locusts, one year of drought, one year of a disease that gets into the livestock. And now in faith, you want me to walk over to this temple and give my very, very best? It'd be really, really hard to do. Just a couple weeks ago, we were visiting relatives up in Iowa, Nebraska. That's where we're originally from. And I was struck by this picture uh, this last week of these straight line winds, 80 mile an hour winds, that swept across Iowa and all, all the way to Chicago and knocked down tons and tons and tons of corn. And I will tell you, there are hundreds and hundreds of miles of corn. So dog food, Doritos, anything you want this fall, it's good. There's plenty of corn up there. But at the same time, it was devastating to those farmers to see fields that literally the corn is taller than me on the sides of the roads, hundreds of miles of it. There are grain bins that were just look like aluminum cans that were all torn up by these winds. Look at a field completely flattened. And I saw that picture of that farmer standing in that field and I thought about him. And I thought, he probably has leased that land. He may not own that land. He's probably leased his tractor, leased his combine. He paid for the best seed that he could possibly afford. He paid for herbicide, pesticide, fertilizer. Up there, he paid for an irrigation pivot. Then he paid to repair the irrigation pivot when it wasn't watering just right. He just bought a bunch of farm fuel because he's really like two months out from harvest. He's got to fill a combine over and over and over again with fuel. And now this, he's a couple months out from harvest. Look at his field. Will that man have enough faith that the first pass with that combine this fall is going to the Lord? Would you give back to the Lord on years like that? On years like this, the bank's real. The implement dealer is real. The feed store is real. There's real bills and real invoices. There's real bankers in town that have lent him all that money. Would you have enough faith to give your first fruits to the Lord? To give your absolute best to that altar? It's in that moment that you say, God, you're invisible. But the bank I can see. The feed store I can see. I see those invoices, I see those bills coming in. Would you have enough faith to put your best on the altar? Let's look at the next two verses in verses nine and 10. Verses nine and 10, they say this, and now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Back then, there was one of those 12 sons we talked about of of Jacob. One of those 12 sons was Levi, and his descendants, that family, they were the ones who were in charge of working at the temple. They were the ones that kept the fires going on the altar and lit the lamps and baked the bread and did the oils and filled the basins with water, and that was their job. And God says, I wish one of you would have just shown up to work and said, we're not lighting this altar unless we do it in faith. We're not even getting started unless we do it in faith. And we love our routines. 
We love our standards. We love our traditions. We love all those things. And those things are settling and good to us. Those things aren't always wrong. But if they steal sincerity away from us, they become wrong. If just that rote memorization of those Levites and what role they did, and like, well, my dad did this at the altar, so I'm going to do this at the altar. My dad always filled the basin, so I'm going to fill the basin. My dad always lit the fire, so I'm going to light the fire. And if you just keep going and going and going, and that steals away the sincerity from your heart, God says, I don't care about this. You should stop doing it. I wish someone would have blown a whistle. I wish someone would have called a foul. Someone would have blown the whistle and said, stop. We're not playing by the rules of the game. That lame animal, that blind animal, that sick animal that's foaming at the mouth, we're really going to put that on the altar? Yet no one blows the whistle. Imagine it like this. Imagine if you came to church one Sunday and Pastor Scott had locked the doors and shut the lights off. He says, we're not coming in this room unless we do it in faith. We're not coming in church unless we do it in faith. That'd be tough. By the way, all of us work at a church, right? Like, you don't shut the doors of your business or your shop or your classroom and say, we're not just going to stop doing this. You have an incentive to keep it going. You have an incentive to keep grinding, right? But what if we blew the whistle and we said, we're not going to do this unless we do it in faith. We're going to stop practice until we run it right. We're not going to keep going down this road that's going to cause us mistakes later. So God says, I wish you wouldn't have swallowed the whistle. Wish you would have blown the whistle when all this was going on. And so he really pegs that Levite tribe. Let's look at the next few verses, verses 11 through 14. Verses 11 through 14, he says this, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or as lame as sick, and you bring this as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, yet sacrifices the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, and my name will be feared among the nations. Notice how many times in this passage he says, my name will be great among the nations. My name will be great among the nations. For I am a great king, and my name will be feared among the nations. Third, we would say this, we forget what kind of king you are. When we go into worship, we simply forget what kind of king you are. We believe this to kind of be our birthright. Our tradition, it's like, it's, uh, it's what we have just kind of been born into. It's what we have. It's what we've always known, and so we just kind of keep doing it. But we forget what kind of king God is. Forget what an incredible king he is. Remember, he's talking to people who are the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God was having a special relationship with their family. Remember we talked about that over here? Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Jacob's name is turned to Israel. They become the tribes of Israel. He's talking to their descendants hundreds of years later. He's talking to the very people that he made this special covenant promise with, this special covenant promise that you're my people, that I'm riding along with you, that you are my people, you have this special promise, and yet he's telling them your proximity to this temple is you're not your proximity to me. 
Your proximity to this temple is not your proximity to me because your hearts are far away from me. The implication that there's other non-covenant people who are worshiping God and God is pleased with their worship. People who are not the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob who are going to worship him from every nation and every tongue all around the world and he's going to be pleased with their worship because by grace and through faith they'll worship him in faith. It's a hard pill to swallow when part of your identity is the fact that you've always had your life kind of circled around this temple. And now God is telling you, your proximity to this building is not your proximity to me. You can have faith and you can worship, but that doesn't come just because you walk through the doors of this temple. The same is true if you're worshiping online or if you're worshiping in this room. It makes no difference. Where you choose to worship is not your proximity to God. It's where your heart is. It's your heart's proximity to God that really, really matters. Think about this for some of us in this room. Maybe you repented of your sin and placed your faith in Christ at a young age. And so you did that. You made that decision. You've been in church your whole life. Every city you've ever moved to, you found a church and you went to it, a church that preaches the Bible and loves the Lord. So you've gone to two or three churches. Maybe this has been your lifelong church. You grew up in this church. It's been your church forever. Maybe you begin to just be kind of become entitled that when I walk in this room, this is where I worship. Because you've been coming here so long, you've been coming to church so long, you've known the Lord so long, you fall back into that routine, back into that tradition, it's robbed you of sincerity. You've never really thought about your heart when you walk in here. You've never really thought about your heart when you tune in online. You just go, this is our tradition, this is what we do. Your proximity to your car, to your church clothes, to this room, to your traditions on Sunday, to the family lunch that you have, to all those things doesn't matter. God says, I want you to worship me in faith. I want your worship to live up to the kind of king that I am. I want your worship to reflect the kind of king that I am. That I'm not housed in this building or with these sacrifices, but I'm a king to be worshiped by all people. So the application for us today is this to be reminded that my proximity to this building is not what keeps me tight to God. That there are six other days of the week in which I can worship God, in which I need to be worshiping God. I know as Pastor Scott has pointed that out over the, these last few weeks with the worship series, it's been convicting to me. How am I worshiping between Sundays? How am I spending time in God's word and prayer between Sundays? There are six other days in which we need to worship him. And then there's another challenging question that comes out of this passage. Do you have enough faith to worship God with your best? Do you have enough faith to worship God with your best? I'll speak for my own life. A lot of times I reserve my best for the events and people and things that I care about. I reserve my best for you during the week in the office. I reserve my best for emails. I reserve my best for meetings. I reserve my best for the way I keep my house or the way I go about my business. That I'll listen to a sermon in my earphones while I'm mowing or cleaning out the garage. Listening to a Christian podcast while I'm doing something completely different. And those are good things to increase my knowledge of Scripture or my knowledge of the Bible or what's going on in Christianity, but it's not worship. It's not dedicated time to worship God. Not spending that dedicated time in His Word. 
A lot of times we think we gotta get a head start on laundry. This is my only little window I can mow the lawn. This is the only time I can do this, this cleaning out of the garage. This is the only time I can run this errand. I've gotta scoop this errand in with this other errand because I don't wanna backtrack, don't wanna do this. And if I get this done, then we'll get a head start on Monday. And then boom, we hit our Monday schedules and off we go. Do you have enough faith to set that down, to worship God with your best? You had enough faith to get dressed and to come here this morning, but is your heart in it? Do you have enough faith to worship God with your best? In the years when the corn gets knocked down, those are the years that's really, really hard. It kind of teaches us where our faith is at. Say, I'm gonna have the kind of faith that it takes to worship God with my best. Thanks for listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org.